Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, Follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. But before we go any further, I have a question. Have you ever been too nervous to ask for a raise or charge what you think you deserve? Does your inner people pleaser ever hold you back from going for what you want personally or professionally? Do you find it hard to compete with other women and not take it personally? Well, lots of women do. And on this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview my friend, integrative coach and strategic advisor, Joanne Heyman, to explore why this is and what we can do about it in our own lives. You can learn more about Joanne on her website, heymanpartners.com. But before you do, stay tuned for all the tools she shares with us here for how you can gain success both personally and professionally. Joanne. Jordana. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really, really been looking forward to this conversation with you. Likewise. I was so happy when you reached out. It gave us a, a great opportunity to, to reconnect um, and also to get me thinking in a particular way. So I really appreciate the, the opportunity for me to, to think about how I can be of service to a, a particular group of women um, in ways that may hopefully mean something to them, even if there's like the smallest little nugget. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to offer that. Well, you're an amazing woman and I've been a friend for many years and I'm just, I'm excited to have a different kind of conversation with you than the ones we normally have where I get to pick your brain a little bit. Um, so why don't you start just by giving a little background on yourself, how you came to do the work that you do and how, uh, how you serve the people that you serve. So I, I think it's important to give context of the first part of my career because it really informs what I do now. So I spent the first 23 years of my career in, in either senior management or running pro-social organizations. And I use the word pro-social intentionally as opposed to nonprofit because I, I think thinking about tax status is the wrong way to think about the work that we do in the world. Um, but I certainly have always been um, animated by mission-driven energy and was able to bring that to organizations for those 23 years as a, as a, a member of a founding team or as an executive director. Um, and I had a whole bunch of different roles, including executive director. 
and one of the things I say when I'm talking to to, to students because I, I lecture at uh, the graduate school that I went to is you know I never had a job that existed before I got there. I was a total autodidact, and so I had to figure a lot of things out as I went along. So I had to sort of learn and produce simultaneously, which formed me in some important ways as a professional and as an adult. I also happened to be highly anti-authoritarian, um, so it suited me to go places where I could sort of make things up as an individual embedded in a team that was doing the same, whether it was a startup or, or a turnaround. Uh, 12 years ago, I opened up the doors to Heyman Partners, which I initially envisioned as a consulting practice. And I wanted to offer to people who were running pro-social organizations, consulting advice based on those 23 years of creating opportunities and solving problems. And I had three clients, uh, which is what enabled me to start my business, like, you know, queued up for a year. And so when I was giving my notice in those three months leading up to it, I met a woman through a yoga teacher, as one does, um, who is a coach and we were introduced in a middle of the night email, but you know, Jordana, how the, there are those people in your life who you just meet them, but you trust them. They're like, you instinctively go, this is a good person. So this yoga teacher who I met at a conference, I just thought, you know, I think I'm going to kind of go with this. She's got that energy. She's got that sort of groundedness. So I'm going to have a meeting with this person. This person ended up becoming my coach. And it was wonderful because as I was making the transition from running an organization for somebody else to being a founder myself, that kind of support was essential. After several months of being in coaching, my coach turned to me and said, you know, the way that you think about and execute on consulting is very much like coaching. I'd like you to consider training as a coach. So that's how I got into the coaching piece of the business was having the very powerful experience of being coached. So I did, I went through this year long training program and then began to weave coaching into the consulting practice. That was 11 years ago, sort of fast forward to today, coaching is 80% of what I do. The balance is actually facilitation or maybe it's 70, 30. So the consulting has sort of been absorbed into coaching because I have found it to be one of the most powerful and transformative ways of supporting individuals and teams. And so I've kind of grown up in coaching as the field itself has gotten greater awareness um, and people are turning to coaches on a more regular basis and understanding that you do so not necessarily because you need to remediate something bad, but it's a way you gain success, either for yourself as a person, as an individual, i.e. life coaching, or um, professionally. People would also frequently come to me and say, oh, are you a life coach? Are you an executive coach? And I said, yes. And then I thought, well, that's kind of a cheeky answer, but I think I need a better one. And so I coined the term integrative coaching because I integrate what I think are some of the most powerful practices in both personal and professional development to try to be of service to my clients. Because we do bring our whole selves to work even if we're well-boundaried, which we should be. And there, so there's a difference between being well-boundaried, which is essential, and being integrated, right? Being integrated means you understand that if you've had a fight with your partner in the morning, you might be a little on edge when you go into that first Zoom call or walk into the office. What practices do you have to help you 
because you're you're carrying that with you. And the reason it's integrated is because you're referring to all the different aspects of our life. We're not just a, an automaton that shows up at a meeting. We're a human that had an argument with our partner before that meeting, and we have to be able to be in touch with all the parts of ourselves. In fact, I know we're doing this audio, but I'm showing to this to you um, verbally. So I just read a book and did a week long course on internal family systems. And the, the, the book we had to read is called No Bad Parts. Um, and I'm not here as a commercial, although it was awesome. No bad this, parts. That we don't have bad parts, but we have parts. And that's okay. And sometimes they're more useful than us and others. The part of us that wants to sleep in isn't useful to the part of us that needs to get up and conquer the meeting. Exactly. But, yeah. but she needs rest. Yes, she does. Right? So, so acknowledging that she needs rest and that's what I mean by integ integrating that into the way you think about your week is really important and not, not to, so that we don't shame any parts of ourselves. They're all a part of who we are. All Joanne is made up of many, many parts. There is a, there is a self of who I am, but there are parts and some of them are parts that were formed when I was a child. And as I've gone through my life and to not demonize them, you know, we, we, we often talk about the inner critic um, and it's not that the inner critic isn't alive and well in many of our heads or sitting on many of our shoulders, but instead of demonizing her, why don't we go, huh, you've played an interesting role and maybe an important role or a useful role at different times. Today, you could be quiet. I've got this. Yeah, no, it's engaging with that, listening to that part, saying, you know, if one of our parts is our inner critic, when we start hearing the voice of the inner critic, let her have her say for a minute, but also say, you know, oh, let's give ourselves credit. But right, yes, exactly. The joyful part can take over now. That's, that's exactly it. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. When you started, you mentioned the words well-boundaried. And I think that's really interesting. I've never heard it stated exactly that way, but I think it's really important to jump into um, because boundaries are super important. What can you, what, what can you shed some light on? So I think of boundaries not as walls, but as parts of our container, a beautiful container. So think of it like a beautiful vase in which you, you know, your water, your blossoms, you know, are in this beautiful vase. And so well-boundaried means knowing what you need to do to protect yourself in healthy ways. We, we just spoke about sleep. Well-boundaried can mean getting enough sleep. Well-boundaried can mean knowing how to fuel yourself with, with things that are nutritious and nurturing. Well, boundaried can mean the hour after which you don't take phone calls. In my case, the well boundaried is the time in the morning before I take my phone off airplane and allow the world to enter me through my phone of you know texts and 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 emails and whatnot. Well boundaried can also mean knowing when a conversation has gone to a place that is going to be triggering for you and that it's okay to say, let's not continue right now. I don't want to react. I want to respond and I need a moment. So that, 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 that vase, we have, well, vases get cracks in them. And I won't, you know, do the whole Leonard Cohen thing, right? Vases have cracks. Um, that's where the light gets in and we learn things from our cracks, but it's this idea that it's, it's lightly protective. It's not armor, you know, that, that, that makes us numb. Or, or prevents us from connecting. And so well-boundaried at work, there's a lot of 
great literature on this now, um, is around acknowledging when you're having emotional response and you want not to demonize, to use a word of that emotion, but to acknowledge it and say, this may not be the best place for which me to give a, an answer, whether that's on email or, or voice or whatever. Um, well, boundary is also knowing the difference between being valuable and invaluable and knowing that you don't have to volunteer for everything and say yes to everything in order to add value. And that goes in your personal and your professional life. So part of being well boundaried is knowing that invaluable is kind of bullshit <laughs> and that you can just be, you can offer what you have to offer. You don't have to spill out all over the place. But that starts with you owning a, a deep understanding of what your value is. Yeah. So I'll give you an example professionally, because I think examples are helpful. When I, early on in my coaching practice, I felt the need to continue to be the people pleaser, invaluable person that I had structured myself and, and had been raised to be. And so I had a, you know, a coaching structure, let's say an hour every week for clients, but I was so nervous about delivering value that I said, but you can call me anytime or you can text me anytime. And I was so worried that the amount that I was charging for the time that I was giving might not feel valuable enough that I had to offer more. That was crazy. And that came from some insecurity, which we all have, but this impulse to be invaluable. And when I have been able to contain it and say, this is the structure of the coaching engagement. If you have an emergency, text me, we'll find 15 minutes. Otherwise, we'll bring it up at our next call. Can we talk more about this insecurity and why it's so hard for us to feel valuable or to, you know, or why people or where this people pleasing comes from? Um, is there anything deeper you know about it that you can share? Well, I can share from my own experience and, and what I witnessed in, in my clients. And it, it really is much more with my female clients than my male clients. I think many of us have been raised either by families or by society to feel that making other people happy, successful, whole, good is our job. Um, I know that, you know, I, my parents are wonderful people, absolutely wonderful people. And I was raised to have great ambitions and, and to be fearless and, and go out in the world. So it's not about having been, you know, a, a delicate little blossom. No, no. I mean, I was expected to go out and do good stuff, but also, you know, to do it in a way that was nice and to not, you know, not offend people. And there's some good that comes from that, Jordan. I mean, I happen to be on most days a very diplomatic person and can bring people to the table and help them have conversation. So pleasing isn't all negative, just like we were talking about before with the parts. I don't demonize the people pleaser, but I also understand that she does things sometimes to her own detriment. And so the insecurity comes from not understanding when we're enough, not understanding that sometimes... And I actually have what I call the enoughness mantra, which I do and I ask my clients to do when they're in this position, which is, I know enough, I have enough, I am enough. And knowing enough doesn't mean you're going to stop learning, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean you're going to like turn off your curiosity. It just means that, you know, in many circumstances, you may know enough to move things forward. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that women, in my experience, or just even myself compared to my guy friends, 
I don't see my guy friends getting stuck with this the way that I have in my life. I look back on my life as an attorney and the perfectionism, the feeling like I just needed to give so far above and beyond to my clients and even being afraid that I wasn't worthy of the worthy of the hours that I was charging. Whereas my guy friends that were practicing the same area of law would charge more and not necessarily even give as much as I did, but they felt they were so much more confident about it. Even if I knew just as much as as they knew, I experienced a lot of my guy friends being way more confident, way more bold, and way more willing to charge for their time and not question whether they were enough at all. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I, I think a lot of it is society. I mean, I just, I, I think it's, it's um, outdated um, sets of expectations around who women are. Again, I think even if you're raised by loving parents, regardless of gender, just loving parents who, who want you to be all you can be regardless of gender, society has given us continually, even in 2022, giving us a lot of messages about being kind, going the extra mile, having value somehow related with the way we make other people feel. Yeah, I think people respond worse to women when we're, when, we're, when we're strong than they do to men. But I also think in addition to society, it could have to do with our own inbuilt empathy and sensitivities, mm-hmm. where if, if I'm way more empathic and sensitive, I'm going to take that client in my hands in a different way than if there's a lot less of that and I'm just being functionary, getting the job done and charging for it. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if there is something to do with female sensitivity as well on top of it. That's a really good question. I think think I'm going to take your question and play with it a little bit. I think there are many extraordinary things about being female, either by birth or by choice, but, you know, I, I, and that shouldn't be negated. And one of them is that sort of, attunement that we might have to others. And I'm, I'm, I'm shying away from the word sensitivity, Jordana, because I think that that's double-edged. But I think our ability to tune in to others is a gift. Yeah, intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the observation, connection. Yeah, which I think women are amazing at. Right, being able to walk in someone else's shoes almost automatically when we meet them and to try and understand them. So there's a there's a deep gift in that that I think many, not all, because I don't, but but many women have. I just don't know that it's been sufficiently celebrated and and promoted as like I hate the word soft skills. You were talking about hard skills like accounting, coding, and then you know soft skills, empathy, kindness it's not a soft skill, it's a power skill. So sometimes it's also just a way that we individually and collectively can reframe those gifts that we have. And then when we reframe them, we can celebrate them and we can promote them and we can have conversations about them being essential. They're not bad, they're not soft, they're essential, which doesn't mean they need to be everywhere at all times. And they definitely don't need to be getting in the way of us creating a, our, you know, our billing statements for our clients um, when we're, you know, that's, that's not the place for it. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's where standing in your value and which by the way, I don't know if this was your experience. It's certainly been mine. It takes a lot of inner work to get there. It takes a lot of work to be able to do it. And I read a really 
interesting book a number of years ago that was recommended to me by a much younger woman, and it's called The Prosperous Coach, written by a guy. And it says, you should quote a fee that makes you feel like you're going to vomit and then not say anything. And I've tried that with limited success. The, you know, the whole, you know, upset stomach thing isn't really a metaphor that, <laughs> that I like to play with on, a, on an ongoing basis. But I do my market research. And then I decide whether I want to, where I want to place myself. And I decided, let's try placing myself at the top of the band and see what happens. And so that's a way that you can start to play with it is you have to get a little bold, you have to get a little courageous, and you have to stop yourself from negotiating against yourself. And a way that I encourage people to do this, do it as an experiment. Try it once or twice. My, my younger daughter um, was recently offered a, a new job and the pay wasn't quite what she was looking for and she didn't know how to do it. And so I and her older sister who works in HR sort of coached her to say, well, I was hoping not to go below this amount. And she got a great response. It wasn't an aggressive, I demand, I deserve, da da da. It was just, a, it was, it was a, an honest expression. It was a little bit of a push. It was a little bit of a story. Experiment with owning value. It's not gonna. It's not gonna happen right out of the gate. Um, I've done that with my fees. I don't know if you did that with your billing hours, but act like a guy in that regard. See what happens. Are you comfortable? Are you getting a result that you want? Okay. Yeah, I took a break from law for a while uh, to experiment with different things. This podcast, my YouTube channel, and also working for a sustainable startup for a few years. But then I came back practicing law, and actually, this was one of the areas where having some space from my life before and who I was in that space before mm -hmm. when I came back and I started while I was away from it, but still friends with all my guy friends who were practicing law and observing the way they continued to, to be and their confidence and their ability to just demand their value every single time. When I came back to law, I've actually been doing that more and it feels great. And I realized I'm just as good as they are. So why wouldn't I do that? And it feels sad for the me before that wasn't doing that. It mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. I wasn't, why was I doing that? Right. I don't know, but I was. And I, and I, you know, I don't really love the phrase fake it till you make it because fake just doesn't land well with me. But it, I think it was like, try it, you know, try it until you can own it. And also understanding that those other people that are doing the thing that you want to be doing Oftentimes, they're not actually better, smarter, stronger, more competent in, 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 than you are. Uh, or at least that's been my experience. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story about this um, because it also relates to how women relate to each other. So when I was sort of newish in this coaching space and, you know, putting myself out there a little bit on social media platforms, doing some blogging, doing some writing for, for different outlets, like, you know. Now I'm on like, you know, Forbes Coaches Council and things like that. There was a woman who was like blowing up in the kind of related space. And man, was I jealous. I was just like, I was really jealous. So I thought, well, I can either let the, you know, the envy kind of eat away at me or I can figure out what, what is she doing? And is any of what she's doing things that I would like to do? And so I did some investigation and I wasn't sure. And I was talking to somebody who knows this person well, and I'm like, how did she be, get to become X? 
and I won't say her name because she's a brand name now. How did she get to become X? And my friend who knows her said, she just decided to. She has no more education than you have. She has way less experience than you have. She just determined one day that this is what she was going to be. And she started living and working and talking in this way. And she's good at what she does. So I don't mean to say that she wasn't authentic. Right. And I'm also saying we always have to be good at what we do. We can't show up, slack off, and not honor the clients that we're here to serve and think that all of us is okay. But yeah, so absolutely it requires being good. But yes, keep going about this woman. Right. But, so being, but being good, you're good, I'm good, that, what, that's not enough in, cert, right, in certain competitive environments. This woman decided one day, I'm going to be this, and then made it happen. So part of it is not fake it till you make it, but be really clear on what you actually want. Define success on your terms. What does success look like? Design success on your terms, yeah. Right. Success for me might look different for you. It should, which, which would look different from every woman who's listening to this podcast. We all can take responsibility for defining success. And once we do, how you get there is so much, it almost reveals itself to you. Yeah, like this woman that you're describing, it sounds to me like she sat down, asked herself, if I could be the, the starring role in any movie, what do I want that character to look like? What do I want my hero, the hero I play to look like? Designing that. And, you know, it would be different for everyone. For some women, it means being the best pilot that they could be. For someone else, it means forming a company. For someone else, it might be, mean being a politician. For someone else, it might be being a, a certain kind of teacher, builder, creator, singer, dancer, whatever. Everyone has their own thing that they're aiming for. Like you said, my goals won't be the same as your goals, won't be the same as someone else. It depends on our preferences and our strengths and all those things. But I think you make a really good point. When was the last time you sat down and really asked yourself what would be the ultimate, ultimate outcome? There, what's it called again? Idealized design, I think is how I heard it described. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. But I do a lot of like design your life work and it's very similar to that. And I would say, Jordana, you know, it's great to t put pen to paper or, or finger to keyboard and, and write down like what success looks like for you. What are all of the ingredients? And when you say ingredients, what are some things when they're asking what success looks like? So let's just say anyone listening, you write down on a piece of paper, what does success look like? And what are some of the different things they should be asking to fill that paper, that fill out that list for themselves? Okay. So let, let's just, let's be like super pragmatic money. What is, what does success look like for you in terms of money? What you're earning, what you're saving, what your retirement goal is, right? It could be anything. What does success look like in terms of the work you're doing, where you're doing it and with whom, right? That's really one of the most important things as we know. What does success look like for you in terms of community? Right. The people you surround yourself with, the friends you make, who you hang out with. Who you engage. What does success look like, like for you in partnership? If you're in it or if you want it, or by the way, if you don't want it, which is also fine. What does success look like for you in terms of your relationship to yourself? How, you know, what is that self-talk? How are you, how are you taking care of yourself? I, you know, self-care is not about Manny's petties and spa days. Self-care is about the way we speak to ourselves. The things we give ourselves permission to do, the things we give ourselves permission not to do. 
So success looks like, to go back to our discussion about 20 minutes ago, being well-boundaried. Okay, so what does, that, what does that mean? What does success look like in terms of the way that you can express your creativity or your sense of adventure? So you can apply this question not just to, I started with the easy, easy as in what most people think of, you know, money and, and, and career. You notice I didn't say title. What are you doing and with whom and where? And so if you start to be holistic in the way you define success, you can then put into place practices or goals that help you move in that direction. And you own the whole thing. You own the definition and the process. Now, you might want to get help along the way. <laughs> Little plug for coaches and therapists or, or best girlfriends, right? Doesn't, you know, it can be anyone. How or reading you- books, you know, on these things right. for anyone who can't afford coaching or. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you said that because there are so many incredible resources. Completely for free. Yeah, completely for free. So. If you take responsibility for this definition and this process, you also get a deep sense of pride and satisfaction. And there's no right answer. There's only your answer. And for anyone who's feeling stuck in their circumstances and thinking that's easy for you to say, but dot, 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 Mm -hmm. because of their own situation, do you have any advice for people who are feeling really stuck and not seeing a way out? especially financially, you know, if they're feeling that they're so financially constrained that these other things aren't available necessarily. Yes. And that's a great question. And you're right. In my experience, the best way to get unstuck is by taking small steps is by not trying to do make huge grand gestures, really small steps. So let's take the money, for example, you know, can you save $5 a week? And how would you do that? You know, is there something, is there, because I'm not about deprivation, Jordana. I really just don't believe in it. I think it's a terrible motivator. But can you set aside $5 a week if it's a financial kind of strain? Nature is free. If you want, if you need inspiration and you, can you get someplace where you can be inspired by nature and feel that sense of calm? Or if it's not the $5 a week to save, it could also potentially be like 5 minutes a day to learn and be studying a new skill or trying to exactly. I was going to say five calls a week to a friend or, or somebody maybe you've lost touch with. I actually challenged myself during the early days of the pandemic lockdown that if I thought of somebody, I called her, not a text, not an email, a non-scheduled phone call, which produced unbelievable delight and surprise for everyone. Yeah, it's really sweet when the phone rings, someone you're excited to hear from, who you love and respect, and here they are calling. So nice. Yeah. So there's a lot that's free in in that regard. I love what you said. You know, and there are practices. Meditation practice is free. You close your eyes or or merely just lower them. That's in terms of self-care, but in terms of success on the money, savings, feeling constrained financially, and feeling stuck where they are little investments also in getting more skilled. Uh, Mm. And you said those five phone calls, maybe they could be five calls, uh, five little extra things for work. Uh, I don't know, like um, five cold calls, like five sales calls, for example. Yeah. When I have clients who are looking to make a major career transition, I tell them to do what what I call an informal 360. You know, I'll say call call a, a group of people whose opinion you value and trust and who know you and ask them questions like, where do you see me glow and really show up beautifully? Where have you seen me struggle 
if you could help me imagine an awesome job or career future, what would you what would you want for me? Where would you tell me to steer clear? And you can get great data, Jordana. Because the people around us, they observe us. They're aware of our strengths and weaknesses in ways that we might be blinded from seeing ourselves. Exactly. That's free. Yeah. And it's really, really powerful. Yeah. Just ask them to be honest and trust that they have your best interest at heart in being honest, whether they're telling you you're a rock star, go for it, or, you know, here are some things you might want to really pay attention to. Yeah. Even in the ways that hold hold us back, like in the ways that we may, in, if we're finding that we're not having success in certain areas, the people closest to us might be able to help us see why. And I'll give you an example. I have a client who is quite introverted. She is a spectacular individual contributor and she, but she was being asked to step up and lead in ways that she didn't really understand how to make it real for her. And so her, her homework one week in coaching was say one thing in every meeting. And she said to me, literally, I don't think I can do that. I'm like, no, that's your homework. I want you to say, I said, because what you're keeping inside your head is probably very valuable to the people in your company. You weren't hired just to execute. You were hired also because you know stuff. And she laughed because the next time we met, she's like, I did it twice in one meeting. And all of a sudden, right, she just started to, that's what I mean about small steps, develop a muscle. It wasn't like go and write a, a you know, strategic plan for your division. Say one thing in each meeting. It can be a comment. It can be a question. Your choice. And then she builds that muscle and all of a sudden she's in a totally different standing professionally a year later than she was the day she started, even though it just was true. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I absolutely don't doubt it. Um, what else have you learned about women from, from the work that you do and, and ways that women can improve their lives or understand more about themselves? It's a, it's a big and, and really important question. I think one of the things that I've observed is that, I go back to what I said about some of our gifts and strengths, is that we often have a really, really amazing capacity to connect we also have an amazing capacity, many of us, to show up in ways we think the world wants us to, but that may not be in alignment with how we feel. Tell me more. I'm thinking about a young woman who said, you know, people expect me to be the problem solver and the happy one. And I do that, but I'm really, really tired. It takes a lot of energy. I don't have men saying that to me. Now, I will say my male clients have other sources of exhaustion. But for, for women, it's just like, well, we're expected to be a certain way, and it's tiring. I love, there's something called the NAP ministry. It's, it's, it's a woman of color who started it, and her primary audience is women of color. But it's the idea that we are just so tired and that we need to take a nap. We need that rest is a revolutionary act. And so I would say for women, rest is a revolutionary act. And do you mean like a literal nap in the middle of the day? Yeah, but we should all be warriors and let ourselves rest. Yeah, it's important. Otherwise, we can't execute on the level. Yeah. Women um, tend to be peacemakers. And I can, from my own experience, I have often done that at my own expense. Yeah. Expense of my own emotional wellness. So you're keeping the peace between another person by not by not necessarily fully getting your way or having an outcome that is truly aligned with you. Right. Or a peacemaker in between two people. I'm often in that role where you're, you know, there's a difference between being a peacemaker and being monkey in the middle. 
get back, you know, you have to like know where your ground is that you want to stand and where you have to then tell other people, you now need to go and work on this. I'm, I'm taking myself out. Like, you know, you, you can start the, you can, you can start the conversation, but monkey in the middle where people are playing you one side off the other. I've seen women get in that position a lot, myself included. I, I coach from my own painful experiences, not just, <laughs> not just from theory. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, instead of thinking about the monkey in the middle, but do you, do you have any insights into conflicts between women or you talked about jealousy? Um, do you think that jealousy between women uh, is different than uh, it is f- between men? Like, you know, the way that men look at each other and the way women are with each other and the way women compete with each other versus the way men compete with each other. Have you observed any differences in your work? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, in men it's called competition and competition's good. Right. So if they're jealous, they're competing for the job, the title, the budget, the partner, the recognition. But it's competition. When women do it, it's catty, it's mean, it's ugly, it's 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 somehow inappropriate. And so we have these natural competitive instincts and we're told that they are unattractive, they're unappealing and that we shouldn't have them. And so we're not taught, I believe, how to deal with them in a way that's constructive. Yes, but also I think that men, you know, can like get around, be competitive with each other and then still go for beers and have fun afterwards and not hate each other where somehow when women are competing with each other, it feels different and it's harder for us than I well, think to feel, feels personal. I think we acknowledge that it's personal and it, we wrap it up in our identity and, and in all the shoulds that come with that. I should be kind. I should be nice. I shouldn't want this. I think it just comes back to what I was saying earlier in our conversation to acknowledge that that's just a part of who we are as a human being. We are going to be envious sometimes of another woman. And instead of beating ourselves up, acknowledging it, and I think the best way to deal with it is to acknowledge it and then say, how can I use this as a bridge to somebody else as opposed to a barrier between us? So if I'm like, I used the example before of this unnamed coach well, I could either use that as a barrier between us or I could say, well, hmm, this is really interesting. Why don't I go and learn more and connect as opposed to be in this um, more combative inner stance? And you mean connect with that coach or connect with? Either connect with that coach or connect with that part of me and then understand her and love her and ask her what she needs more of. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you how you talked about how when, when it comes to competition, we personalize it and we wrap up our identity in it. And so it's very hard to separate that out. And I think that if men can compete and then still have camaraderie afterwards, I think that it helps them get ahead in ways that if we can't compete with each other and still have camaraderie and be on each other's side after it, if, if it only just makes us that it brings out the ugliness and the meanness, the clickiness, right? You know, you remember yeah. like middle school. Oh, whatever. I sure do. Excruciating. Yeah. And guys don't really do that, right? No, you're on the team. You're not on the team. You're on a different team. I mean, look, men have lots of things to deal with and they have their own emotional wounds and, and, and challenges. But I think we buy into this thing. Well, there are clicks, there is cattiness, there is this and that we could have a whole other set of frameworks that we're brought up with. I mean, I have two daughters who are in their 20s. They don't gossip. They just don't because that wasn't a set of expectations 
and the culture in which they were brought up. And I don't give myself credit for that. I give the community in which they, you know, we live credit for that. So you brought them up in a nice place where people, where the culture was niceness. Matters. Kindness matters. Not, no, I mean, you know, look, I don't want to be uh, super, you know, of course, people, you know, people can be mean. Kids can be mean to each other. People can feel left out. I'm not talking about, you know, a, a nirvana where nobody does that. But what was expected was was clear and it was much more collaborative. Did this come from the school they went to? Where do you think this originated, this um, energy came from? I think it's school, community, era, broader culture. That's really lucky. Mm-hmm. And I think we can we can all make that luck for ourselves and for each other in the frameworks that we choose, in the language that we choose, in the in shifting our expectations from you know this sort of binary good bad you know, evil, kind, whatever, to a more nuanced understanding of the human condition. But that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Are there any, uh, I know I have to be mindful of your time. Um, Are are there any other last minute things you want to bring up? Ideas you wanted to share that are important? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would say, especially for anybody who's listening, who's feeling um, a little bit alone or like, okay, this is great, but like, how do I make it actionable? What do I do? Yeah. Peer networks are amazing ways to get support. And, and I encourage all of my clients to engage in them. They, they, some are really expensive and some are free. And so if you can find a network and it can be a professional network, it can be, you know, a book club, it can be an alumni group, wherever you went to school, anywhere from high school on up, touching base with people, putting together groups that have some shared identity, profession, geography, school, other forms of your identity, and creating a, a, a regular cadence, once a month, once a quarter, three times a year, whatever, to get together and talk about what matters, I have found to be really, really powerful. And you can do it facilitated or you can do it on your own. But it's a way to schedule into your life moments of connection with a purpose. I love that connection with purpose. Yeah. And after COVID, we all understand the value of people in our lives and the connections that we have. We're definitely in a moment where none of us are taking that for granted. That's for sure. That's amazing. So before we end, can you just share more about where women can go to find you, where people can come to work with you, find more about what you do? Sure. Thank you. So my website is heymanpartners.com. It's H-E-Y-M-A-N, like heymanpartners.com. And there's a, there's a contact button. You can find me on Instagram where I'm at Joanne Heyman. I'm on LinkedIn, Joanne Heyman. I try to be consistent. Those are the platforms that I use the most. I, I actually stay away from Twitter, and that was before Elon Musk because I'm just not interested in fighting, and I stay away from Facebook because it got a little polemic. So those are, those are the places that you can find me, and I welcome any, any reach out for you know, questions, thoughts, conversation. You don't have to you know, explore coaching to, to be in connection with me in some way. Thank you so much, Joanne, for your time. This has just been so great. I, I love exploring these ideas with you, and hopefully we can even do it again sometime. Thanks. I look forward to it. It's been wonderful to talk to you this morning. You too, as always. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. 